a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You may have heard the rumors. This is a place where people gather to uh, revel in wrong think. Yeah, it's kind of like a speakeasy from 100 years ago. <laughs> okay, it's nothing nearly that clandestine, but it is a necessity that you be willing to engage in wrong think today if you're going to see the world clearly and understand things as they are as well as what you can do about it. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself tied in knots, worrying about things over which you have no control. And frankly, I, look, I'm not saying this is someone who doesn't find myself caught up in that as well. I do occasionally. But ultimately, I want you to believe that, uh, yes, there are some weird things going on, but uh, that doesn't mean that all is lost or you and I somehow are mere victims at the you know, fate of a you know, malevolent universe. In fact, I would encourage you to, to think about what's happening. And, and this doesn't mean agree with me. It just means think about what's happening from the standpoint of, but what can I do to improve the world where I'm standing right this moment? So with that in mind, let's jump right in. My show is brought to you each day by HSL Ammo, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. Now, I'm going to be spending some time today talking a little bit about uh, what we have learned from the uh, midterm elections. And, and I don't spend a lot of time on political stuff, but I want to talk about some, some of the analysis that I found that I think makes a lot of sense. But before I go too deep into it, here's, here's what I would really love for you to take away from today's program. Your efforts and your time are best spent where you have influence. Now, that doesn't mean give up. That doesn't mean, well, you know, just uh, rip the knob off your television and never look at it again. I'm just saying there's an itch that politics is not going to scratch. And the way that you, uh, the way you scratch that itch is you look for someone close to you to champion, someone who may be struggling, someone who needs just a little uplift. It could be a very small thing. It could be something as simple as a smile and some eye contact with the clerk as you're paying for whatever you're paying for at the, the store. Little things like that will bring you a sense of purpose and contentment that politics never will. And then there are, you know, broader, you know, farther reaching things of, you know, becoming more self-reliant, getting out of debt, getting in better shape, strengthening relationships with family and with God. All of those things will matter as well. But politics seems to be the, the main thing that uh, anytime we tap into the news cycle, that's what it's going to be talking about. So in doing some analysis of the, uh, the election earlier this week, it's very telling that people on all sides of the political spectrum are still trying to make sense of exactly why midterms went the way that they did. I mean, come on, there was a lot of talk about this anticipated red wave you know, sweeping the Democrats from power and, and restoring truth and justice to the galaxy. It didn't happen. And there are any number of reasons why it didn't, but let's focus on the fact that, yeah, that didn't happen, but what does it mean for where we're going? I like uh, Jordan Schachtel. He is a wonderful investigative journalist. His uh, latest uh, essay on the dossier Substack account that he, that he runs is titled Balkanized Future, 
Midterms deliver victories for both free state Americans and security state Americans. In other words, the tyrants of COVID mania won the day. I can't think of any of the the COVID tyrants that were really turned out, but so did the freedom fighters. Here's how Jordan Schachtel puts it. He says, the expected red wave anticipated by many conservative pundits turned out to be nothing but a mirage. So what the heck happened? And where does the country go from here? Well, he says, I have three major observations that I hope will make some macro sense of the midterm elections. Number one, many Americans no longer value freedom. By the way, he, I think he's right on this one. And that was that was probably the most bitter truth that I had to face following the election was people really, they just, they don't care. That was a hard one, but, uh, but I think that is the truth. He says, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow for all the flag-waving Top Gun Americans out there, but it's a reality that's now too obvious to ignore. Benjamin Franklin famously once said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Many Americans, if not most Americans, no longer value the foundational principle of liberty. He says, if the last three years of COVID tyranny didn't showcase this enough, the midterm elections proved beyond a doubt that a significant chunk of Americans prefer statist tyranny over individual sovereignty. Across the nation, voters gave their stamp of approval for the forces of the biomedical security state, re-electing a safety regime that promises to protect them from the sniffles in exchange for their fundamental liberties. Virtually all of the worst tyrants of COVID mania were re-elected with ease. Gavin Newsom won by 18 points. Gretchen Whitmer defeated a fantastic GOP candidate in Tudor Dixon by 10 points. Kathy Hochul handily defeated Lee Zeldin. J.B. Pritzker won by 11 points, and the list goes on. Number two takeaway, he says, balkanization is the future. Now, don't let that scare you. He says, the election results also show that there are indeed tens of millions of Americans who still value liberty, and they're consolidating into freedom blocks throughout the country. For instance, in Florida, Ron DeSantis wiped the floor with Charlie Crist in historic fashion. Gun-grabbing Beto O'Rourke was obliterated in Texas. Christy Noam was re-elected in South Dakota by a 62 to 35% margin. In Georgia, Brian Kemp made easy work of Stacey Adams. In Iowa, Kim Reynolds won the state by 19 points. On the Senate side, Rand Paul defeated his opponent by 21 points, and Eric Schmidt won his race in Missouri by over 13. So Americans who live in free states have a lot of reasons for optimism, especially given that we live in a country where a constitutional precedent reserves significant power for the states. By the way, this is something we're going to talk about a little bit later on in in the program here. Anyway, Jordan Schachtel says, now more than ever, it is time for a reprioritization. The federal regime in the D.C. Beltway and its bureaucratic institutions remain the greatest threat to our liberties. Forget about China and Russia for a moment. Americans are being harmed from within by a federal behemoth that continues to run roughshod over our lives and liberties. Instead of sending national candidates to D.C. to fix things, consider sending them to D.C. to break things. A retooling of political priorities means bolstering sovereignty within your domain and insulating your state from the federal government. Localism and or decentralization is the necessary objective. In my view, he says sending a great man to fix D.C. is just not in the cards anymore. D.C. is too big, too bloated, and too one-sided for an opposition leader to steer a permanent course change. 
Now, there is a clear path moving forward that involves harnessing local and state power structures to do everything possible to detach from the ruling empire. New economic, separating money from state, cultural, and political instruments will become the necessary tools to continue getting the federal government off our backs. By the way, I think he's absolutely correct. And his third takeaway from the elections was that the GOP is a soulless vessel for nothingness. He says, consider the possibility that Americans rightly blame both sides of the D.C. unit party for our country's current problems. Both parties' institutional forces overwhelmingly supported the biomedical security state imposed on us for the past three years. Both parties continue to prioritize overseas overseas war adventures over the prosperity of Americans. Both parties debased the currency, contributed to soaring inflation, and greatly impoverished their own citizens. Both parties have contributed to the massive growth of government at all levels. Sure, it's easy to scapegoat Donald Trump for all the bad showings, but he says, who's actually excited to elevate Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy into positions of power? What exactly is the GOP agenda other than to slow down the Biden administration agenda? So Americans really can't get too fired up about voting between two sides of the same coin. So the ballot box remains valuable in local and state elections, but not so much at the national level. So what's next? Well, he says on the GOP side, Ron DeSantis is the big winner of the election, having defeated lofty expectations and positioned himself as the only serious GOP nominee other than President Trump. And he says, I think it's inevitable that DeSantis carries this momentum into a run for the nation's highest office. Though, as he explained above, he says, I think his leadership would be better served in Florida as someone who can lead the state through our our coming balkanized, decentralized future. Still, Still, he says, all signs are pointing to Governor DeSantis throwing his hat in the ring for 2024. And he says, I get it. It's hard to blame him. I wish him luck in that undertaking, but on the other side of the fence, the forces for COVID tyranny received a ringing endorsement to continue imposing draconian carnage upon the masses. And when the next manufactured crisis or emergency comes, these forces won't hesitate to pursue an authoritarian agenda because they now know they can manipulate the people and bring them to their knees in exchange for the illusion of safety. Bottom line is, for freedom-loving Americans... The answers are not going to be found in D.C., but they're much more likely to be found closer to home. I think that's very solid advice. I'll have a link to Jordan Schachtel's column in my show notes. You can check him out at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll take a very quick break and be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Garage Door Pros. Well, I'm very proud to have them as a sponsor of this program. In fact, I would encourage you, click on the link that I provide on my website under my sponsors and go to garagedoorproservices.com to learn about how they install, service, and repair garage doors. And this is true for anybody living in that southwestern corner of Utah, including St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, and Colorado City, Arizona. These are doors that are made in America. I know that matters to some folks. They offer very quick response, much faster lead than other companies can give you. And yes, they do commercial service as well as residential service. So get in touch with garagedoorproservices.com or call them at 435-525-2773. 
So I kind of want to follow up on the, the commentary from Jordan Schachtel, who recommends, look, hey, you know, the, the system in D.C. is so corrupt right now. Your best bet, if you're one of those people who still values freedom, and I know it seems like there sure aren't many of us right now, so it's, it's a little nerve-wracking, but um, if you're one of those people, your efforts are best focused closer to home. And I have an article here from Ryan McMacken from the uh, Mises Institute talking about, first of all, how it's clear that nothing's going to be changing in the nation's capital as a result of the election. But Ryan McMacken says the real battle is now in the states. He says the voters are or the votes rather are still being counted. But one thing's very, very clear. Nothing will change in Washington after this election. The House of Representatives will be likely be controlled by the Republicans, but the majority enjoyed in the by the GOP in the House will be small. And he says this will provide a veto over some of the worst legislation being pushed by the Biden administration. But history has made it abundantly clear that the GOP is more than willing to compromise and work with Democrat administrations rather than simply kill bills. Now, as for the U.S. Senate, well, we're still waiting on the results in Nevada and Arizona. Georgia's headed to a runoff election, but it's clear the Senate will again be close to a 50-50 split. If the GOP manages to eke out a majority, that will help sink some of the worst legislation and some of the worst presidential appointees. But the direction of policy will not fundamentally change. After all, so much of federal policy is now determined by the executive branch that moderate changes in party leadership in Congress will do very little to change the course of the nation's administrative agencies, such as the EPA, the IRS, and the FBI. These agencies have immense power over the daily lives of countless Americans. Yet even sizable majorities of so-called conservatives have shown little stomach to rein in this power. And certainly the small GOP majority now headed to the House will do little. So from global warming to money printing to foreign policy, Ryan McMacken says expect little change. This all combines to mean we should expect little change on policies at the federal level. For example, we can expect to keep hearing plenty about the evil of fossil fuels. The administration will continue to press for less drilling for oil and gas. The war on coal will continue. The administration will continue to issue new edicts to fight global warming. And this, of course, will continue to drive up the cost of living. Just as a quick aside, my friend Ruben sent me a photo from uh, the gas pump yesterday. Diesel has jumped 20, what is it, 20, 25 cents? It's, uh, yeah, it's it's going up. Gas is holding fairly steady, but diesel is getting super expensive, and that uh, is going to affect the cost of everything. Meanwhile, back in the article, Ryan McNacken says on foreign policy, it was clear that nothing much would change short of an overwhelming victory by American first, America first types in Congress. Well, that hasn't happened. So we can expect more of the same foreign interventionism we're seeing right now. He says the U.S. regime will add to the $65 billion it's already sent to Ukraine and will continually ratchet up its involvement in the region, as it recently did with the deployment of U.S. troops near the Ukraine border. Even worse, the U.S. will likely continue to flirt with nuclear war, as the regime's new national defense strategy document has given the Pentagon more leeway in using nuclear arms. The U.S. will not anytime soon remove the approximately 900 American troops currently conducting a regional occupation in Syria. Now, he says, naturally, as far as spending goes or social spending goes, we can expect zero change. Under Donald Trump, Republicans signed off on massive new spending increases and were headed towards approving tw trillion dollar deficits even before 2020. 
With COVID, of course, spending exploded even more, and only a small handful of Republicans expressed doubts. Trump naturally threw a tantrum about even this small bit of opposition. The only disagreements we'll see in Washington in the next two years will be over exactly how exactly to run up the next massive annual deficit. Indeed, if the economy continues to slide as we're seeing it do now, uh, with thousands of new layoffs in the tech sector just this week and real estate falling, we can expect a new bipartisan consensus in Washington calling for a wide variety of new stimulus programs. Neither party will want to be seen as the party of austerity. So the biggest changes will be at the state level. Ryan McMacken says, while Washington will keep up with the same disastrous policies, the real change we'll see will be in the states. The GOP didn't do especially well with state-level offices in this election, and the Republicans lost control of legislative chambers in at least Michigan, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania. Now, on the other hand, the GOP gained supermajorities in both the House and Senate in Florida, plus supermajorities in the state senates of North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Moreover, Nevada's state house is trending toward the GOP. Republicans still control a majority of state houses and also added to the tally of GOP-controlled states in recent cycles prior to 2022. So what all this likely means is a continued divergence between places like Washington State, New York State, and California on the one hand, and Florida, Texas, and Ohio on the other. On matters like abortion, schools, immigration, guns, and energy policy, the differences between the two blocks will only continue to grow. COVID helped illustrate the importance of state-level policy in the very different legal environments that actually exist between so-called red and blue states. This hasn't been forgotten, and many state policymakers will increasingly see themselves as the last defense against federal power. As one GOP operative put it in Politico, with minimal gains at the federal level, the Republican power we held and gained last night in the states will be all the more important for stopping Joe Biden's disastrous agenda. Ronald Brownstein at CNN, who clearly disapproves of red state efforts to separate themselves from federal political trends, noted this in a column titled, Red States Are Building a Nation Within a Nation. He writes, red states supported by Republican-appointed judges are engaging in a multi-front offensive to seize control of national policy, even while Democrats hold the White House and nominally control both the House and Senate. The red states are moving social policy sharply to the right within their borders on issues from abortion to LGBTQ rights and classroom censorship. Yes, we're talking, you know, drag queens, gender stuff. Okay, you get the you get the picture while simultaneously working to hobble the ability of either the federal government or their own largest metro areas to set a different course. To a degree unimaginable even a decade ago, this broad offensive increasingly looks like an effort to define a nation within a nation, one operating with a set of rules and policies that diverge from the rest of America more than in almost any other previous era. Now, Brownstein frames it like a sinister plot against the left's favorite interest groups, and he no doubt exaggerates the magnitude of it all. But he is right. Red state governments do have the ability to set up obstacles to federal policy. Gone are the days when state governments simply fell in line every time the federal government demanded some new capitulation. One example of this is the recent conflict between the Biden administration and the Arizona government on the matter of border security. The state government had placed shipping containers along the border to form a makeshift wall. The administration demanded their refusal but the state refused to remove them. So what does this mean? Well, Ryan McMacken says a national divorce is inevitable. 
we can expect more states to simply refuse to play along with federal policy. Democrat-controlled state governments have done this for a year with policies like creating sanctuary cities for immigrants or legalizing recreational marijuana. The latter has uh, not become virtually mainstream thanks to state-level resistance. But the fact is, state governments do have the ability to push back against federal policymakers. States can interfere with federal education policy. They can refuse to enforce federal gun laws. States can make their own abortion policies. States can refuse to do what they're told. So that cultural divide is going to continue to build. And I know that's this is a scary topic to bring up, but maybe it is time to talk about a national divorce. By the way, Tom Woods has an excellent book that he has just published on that. Might be worth looking at. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I have been uh, preaching the gospel of food storage and self-sufficiency for a long, long time. And I know for some people it's like, yeah, it's because you're a doomsayer, Hyde. You're nothing but a doomsayer. Well, I, I do tend to keep an eye on what's coming, and I do sometimes think, well, you know, I'd rather prepare for the worst and, and be wrong than uh, simply coast on through life thinking, yeah, everything's going to go great. Everybody thinks it's their generation that's going to have the hardships. But the point is, if you live long enough, you are going to live in interesting times. And can we at least agree, times are interesting and getting more interestinger than than we like. Sorry, that's horrible, horrible English, but I stand by my statement. So let's talk a little bit about uh, changing popular culture. I know a lot of people are trying to do this right now from the top down. This is why you see mandates. This is why you see so much pressure from the federal government on, you know, LGBT rights and so forth. They are just pushing for cultural change. But Andrea Widberg, writing for American Thinker, has an excellent essay about how Republicans must actively engage in and change popular culture. That's more of a bottom-up kind of approach. She says, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, when the characters find themselves in an afterlife of tremendous beauty, Lewis includes a group of stubborn dwarves who insist that they're actually trapped in a dark, dirty shed. In many ways, Republicans are the same. Despite a world of virtually unlimited media channels, they continue to act as if it's still 1970 and there are just three big networks when it comes to popular culture. She says, until Republicans break out of that mental prison, Democrats will continue to control popular culture and, by extension, the vote. During his Wednesday night monologue, Tucker Carlson said something important, having to do with the fact that when it comes to selling their message, Republicans are like the dwarves. They insist that their ability to communicate with Americans is, a, is still a little 1970s-style shed with one crackling microphone. He said the mechanics of an election, they matter sometimes more than any individual running in the election. The way people vote makes a big difference to the outcome, and so, by the way, does access to channels of communication. Now, Tucker says, why does that matter? Well, because you can say whatever you want, but if no one hears you, you're not really speaking. And that's the case for Republicans. So often, as of tonight, Republicans can communicate their message unencumbered on a single cable television channel and low-trafficked websites. That's it. 
The rest of the American media amounts to a gigantic filter designed to distort Republicans. It's a campaign apparatus, and only the Democrats have it. Now, Tucker Carlson says you can whine about that. Oh, the media are liberal, but it's not about liberal or conservative. It's about winning elections. Democrats can win because they have that. So if Republicans want to win elections too, they might spend money to fix that to achieve parity. So to restate, as of tonight, he says the Democrats have far more control over the election machinery, almost total control of the American media, and Republicans don't. These are not ideological problems. It's not a question of who's right on the issues. That's settled, certainly in our minds, but possibly in the minds of people, even in the minds of people who vote Republican, if it would occur to them, but it doesn't because they don't know what they stand for. Now, Andrea Woodberg says, I'm not as dismissive as Tucker is about Internet sites. That, she says it's not just because I write for one, but because they're a very good medium for communicating political information. Only the Daily Wire, though, has grasped Andrew Breitbart's improbable insight, which is that politics is downstream from culture. And it's probably done so because Ben Shapiro, when writing Primetime Propaganda, the true Hollywood story of how the left took over TV, took over your TV, rather, interviewed some of the most important people behind 1960s and 70s TV and heard them unabashedly boast about how they used entertainment to shift people's values. In 1972, the popular sitcom Maud ran a two-parter on abortion with the eponymous character deciding to get an abortion. So it's probably not a coincidence that the next year, the Supreme Court, measuring the cultural winds blowing, published Roe v. Wade, paving the way for over 63 million American abortions. Other television shows subtly and not so subtly pushed the culture further and further left on everything, feminism, gay rights, transgenderism, illegal immigration, economic policy, etc., Sitcoms, talk shows, crime dramas, nighttime soaps, and perhaps most importantly, kids shows, whether on the networks, PBS, Nickelodeon, or Disney, pushed a consistent cultural message. Democrat values are good. Republican values are evil. In 2022, she says the GOP still spends money the old-fashioned way on consultants, most of whom seem to be useless. Imagine how much more helpful it would be if conservatives had a TV channel which had a comedy show in which a woman doesn't get an abortion, a nighttime soap opera in which an unhappy character is lovingly steered away from having so-called gender reassignment surgery, or an after-school show in which a teacher is a bad guy for trying to re-identify, or the cool characters wonder if it's unfair for people to jump the line to get into America when, they, when many have waited so patiently to do it the legal way. Now, people point to Christian TV to say that these conservative shows are a cul-de-sac in which no one is interested. But the early Christian TV shows were too earnest, too primitive, and too obvious. We can easily create entertainment just as good as the left's, only with different core messages. She says more and more one gets the impression that the GOP doesn't want to win. The power brokers seem to enjoy the perks and the money without the responsibility of governing. No wonder, then that when it comes to countering the left's total control over popular culture, the power and money people behind the GOP seem perfectly content to live in their dark little shed with no access to ordinary Americans, rather than going out into the light on the internet or cable TV with a brave new station carrying entertainment that delicately but entertainingly pushes classic American and Judeo-Christian values. Now again, this is Andrea Widberg writing for AmericanThinker.com. 
And by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to stump for the Republicans saying, yes, what we need is more Republican-oriented programming. But I think her point is well taken. And if you've listened to this show at all, you know I am a fan of the idea of building parallel institutions. That would include media. Parallel media, including entertainment. Certainly it can be done. It's being done. But I guess we're creatures of habit. I say as I go back over to my Twitter account, anything interesting on there? Just a little something to think about. Maybe you're one of those people who's, who is destined to help create one of those parallel institutions. But we've got to be much more creative than we've been if we hope to affect any kind of change. All right, I'm going to shift gears here for a moment. There's an article that I'm also including in my show notes today from Charles Hugh Smith. Regardless of who's elected, imperial corruption rules the nation. Now, this is in pretty much in, in league with some of the other articles I've been sharing as well. Nothing much is going to change. But what's beautiful about this particular piece is he talks about what happens when, when you get what he calls imperial corruption, basically corruption at the very highest levels. And he says, the core of imperial corruption is the disconnect between the nation's ideals of representational democracy and open markets and the sordid reality. Elites serve their interests by corrupting both democracy and open markets. Because if you're, if you're talking about really unfettered democracy and markets, we're talking about something that can't be controlled by a tiny self-serving elite. Strip them of their corruption. Democracy and markets are free-for-alls that are constantly evolving. In other words, they're highly adaptive islands of coherence that coalesce and influence the quasi-chaos, competing with other item, or other islands rather of coherence, but never gaining dominance due to the open-ended dynam- dynamism of collaboration and competition that is the beating heart of both democracy as well as open markets. Do you understand what he's saying here? The free market can adapt because it's not being controlled. It's not being corralled by government influence or force. Yes, that makes it kind of messy, and sometimes it makes it unpredictable. But the beautiful thing is the market responds to what people actually want as opposed to what some self-serving little elite clique is trying to make happen. And once a system has been crippled to serve the interest of the elite, which is what we're seeing right now, It can either adapt or die, but guess what? Its mechanisms of adaptation are destroyed when it is controlled by the elite, meaning that the system's going to try to adapt to stay in control. It's not going to work. And he actually has this wonderful S-curve chart, rather, that shows the life cycle of states and empires, their expansion, their collapse, and what makes it happen. So he says, in the meantime, enjoy the political theatrics down on the sand-strewn floor of the Colosseum, while imperial corruption undermines what's left of the nation's ability to adapt fast enough and successfully enough to survive what lies ahead. We can cheer the winners of the blood sport and ignore the winds of disorder sweeping the land. It's a pretty interesting article, and, and that graph alone is worth your time just to better understand what's going on, how we are seeing our culture and our civilization here in America expand and then collapse due to the corruption, the imperial corruption emanating from Washington, D.C. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes yet, I'd like to extend this invitation. Please do. All you need to do is uh, just go to thebrianheidshow.com, click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. You'll notice a little tab that says subscribe. Actually, it's a fairly good sized tab. Hard to miss, but if you will uh, put your email in there, I will add you to my list of subscribers. And each and every day that I do the program, I will send you my show notes, complete with links to all the different articles, authors, and guests that I have on the show. It's a great way to increase your own knowledge. You are not under any obligation to agree with anything that I I share on this program. I just offer what I hope are good, consistent, credible sources of information that will shine some light on uh, where we are and what's happening. What you do with that information, of course, is ultimately up to you. So wasn't it interesting going into the election earlier this week? Remember how that crescendo uh, built up about how if you don't vote with the current administration, it's threatening our democracy. Every, everything was a, a dire threat to democracy. It's going to destroy our democracy. Got a great article here by Michael Schellenberger that argues that democracy wasn't what was on the ballot. It was extremism. And he says extremism actually lost. I'm sorry. He says that uh, extremism was, uh, was voted down. So democracy was on the ballot, says Michael Schellenberger, argued Democrats uh, in the run-up to yesterday's elections. This was published on uh, Wednesday. He says, if voters elected Republican governors and a Republican majority in Congress, Democrats and media pundits warned, we could soon see the end of the American system of Republican democracy. Now, those Republicans who denied the outcome of the 2020 election would use their position to help Donald Trump steal the 2024 election, tear up the Constitution, and install himself as dictator for life, or something. But many Democratic candidates themselves have denied the results of past elections. In fact, in November 2002, Al Gore said he would have won if the the presidency had all the votes in Florida been counted. Even though in 2001, the New York Times conducted a comprehensive review of all uncounted Florida ballots and found that George W. Bush would have won even had the United States Supreme Court allowed a manual recount of the votes to go forward. In 2005, Democratic Senate and House members objected to the certification of Ohio's Electoral College votes for George W. Bush, claiming numerous serious election irregularities. While the losing Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry claimed that the voters were denied their right to vote, too many who tried to vote were intimidated. In 2017, House Democrats objected to the 2016 electoral votes. 67 Democrats boycotted the inauguration, claiming his election was illegitimate. And in 2019, Hillary Clinton said the election was stolen from her and that Trump knows he stole the election and was an illegitimate president. Kind of fun to see all those deniers, uh, you know, with the, with the receipts there in hand, you know. There, there are links to every single one of these instances Michael Schellenberger Berger, uh, points to. Now, he says, it's true that election denialism is much more widespread among Republicans than it is among Democrats. Where seven Democratic House members objected to the certification of their state's votes for Trump in 2017, 139 Republican House members and eight Republican senators objected to the certification of their state's votes for Biden in 2021, 
notes Kathy Young at the Bulwark. At the state level, 19 Republican attorneys general coordinated rather with Trump's legal team to invalidate the results of the vote and involved fraudulent electors sending phony certificates to Washington depicting Trump as the winner. And Trump encouraged a mob of his supporters to to storm the Capitol building on January 6th in an effort to stop the certification of Biden's election. Now, this is where you'll see Michael Schellenberger is not a Trump supporter, obviously, and he is touting the media narrative here. It didn't happen that way. Trump did not send his supporters to storm the Capitol building and stop that certification, but they were definitely protesting the inconsistencies of the election. But... If Democrats really were so worried that America's democracy was on the brink of collapse, then why did they help Trump-backed election-denying Republicans defeat their moderate Republican opponents during the primaries? To be sure, it proved to be effective. All eight Democratic candidates who benefited from the strategy, notes Reuters, were projected to win their races as of Wednesday morning. But if it was a smart strategy in the short term, it also undermines the credibility of the claim that Democrats care more about democracy than Republicans. If they did... Why would they risk electing election deniers? Why would they risk, why would they put a risky political strategy above protecting American democracy? And if Democrats are so concerned about protecting democratic norms, then why did they spend 2016 to 2019 arguing that Trump stole the 2016 election with the help of Vladimir Putin? Not only Democrats, but the mainstream news media for nearly three years prosecuted the notion that Trump was a foreign agent. They even awarded themselves Pulitzer Prizes for their misleading reporting. As a result, many Democrats, including most if not all of my progressive friends, still believe that Trump stole the 2016 election with the help of the Russians. He says they argue that just because Mueller didn't find conclusive proof that the Trump campaign conspired with the Russians didn't prove that Trump didn't conspire with the Russians. Michael Schellenberger says the most ridiculous element of Democratic election denialism isn't the notion that Trump accepted help from Russia, but rather that the things Russia did to interfere in the 2016 election changed the outcome. Now, he says Democrats are right to suspect that Trump and his campaign team would have accepted Russian help to become president. Everything about Trump's past behavior suggests that he would have, and indeed may have, if he felt that doing so would help him and that he would get away with it. Far less plausible is the notion that the things the Russians did, namely spreading fake articles on social media and hacking John Podesta's emails, had much, if any, impact on voters. The Mueller report found that the Russians had spent $100,000 for 3,500 Facebook advertisements from June 2015 to May 2017, an utterly insignificant sum compared to the $81 million Clinton and Trump spent on Facebook ads. Even most liberal analysts, including Hillary Clinton herself, crediting many factors other than Russian interference for Trump's 2016 victory. Now, he says, without a doubt, we should fight foreign interference in American elections, reject election denialism, and protect elections from fraud. But we should also recognize that those things aren't determining factors in what wins or loses elections. Progressives have rightly noted for decades that election fraud is exceedingly rare, and to the extent it occurs, it is almost always too small to change an election. But that same argument applies to Russian interference. Democrats can't, on the one hand, dismiss concerns over election integrity when it comes to counting ballots, and on the other hand, hide concerns over election integrity when it comes to $100,000 in Facebook ads. The failure of Capitol Police 
to prevent January 6th protesters from entering the building was disturbing, but it hardly constituted a near coup. There's little reason to believe a secretary of state could change an election's result for the simple reason that voting is far too closely monitored and decentralized for it to be stolen. It's really hard to rig an election in America because it's so decentralized, confessed one advocate to the Washington Post. It's true that various means exist for someone to undermine our democratic system. The Electoral Count Act is, experts say, too vague. A sitting vice president could point to voting irregularities, invoke the 12th Amendment, and let state delegations in the House vote on the manner. A sitting president could declare a national emergency or the Insurrection Act, rule unilaterally, and deploy the military without the authorization of Congress to put down mass protests. And a secretary of state could simply refuse to sign off on election results that she doesn't like. But none of those constitute a significant threat. Even if a rogue secretary of state refused to certify election results, there are nationwide built-in protections to stop rogue actors from taking over, admits the Post, which has done more to exaggerate the threat Trumpism poses to the republic than any other publication. Now, those protections are other elected officials like the governor and the courts. It might make sense to reform the Electoral Count Act, but even if that doesn't happen, the Supreme Court still exists, to play the role of interpreting vague and confusing laws in light of the Constitution. So, in truth, state governments are constantly making decisions about elections aimed at favoring one party or another, from 100% mail-in ballots in California, which allow for legal ballot harvesting, to the need to show identification before voting, such as in Florida. Now, he says, one might argue such rules undermine democracy, but there are legitimate differences of opinion about what the requirements should be to vote. There are always some barriers to voting, if only the work of reading and filling out a ballot and stuffing it into an envelope. And whatever one thinks of such barriers, they're hardly the end of our republic. So he says, the mirrored obsession of the right with the election fraud and the left with election denialism are undermining America's ability to confront the most important issues facing the country. Extremes on the left and on the right are using false, exaggerated, and hypocritical allegations of fraud and denialism to stoke fear and anger in a short-sighted effort to attract attention, drive internet clicks, and mobilize voters. The good news is the voters have, as a collective, rejected the extremism of both the right and the left and have elected a divided government. Let's hope it stays bogged down. This is The Brian Hyde Show.